Here at Good Shepherd Church, we believe that the Bible is the very Word of God. That there's no other book in all, under all of the sun, no other book in all of creation like this one book. God moved by His Holy Spirit through holy men of old. Now I'm quoting Scripture itself. And the result was that what we have between Genesis and Revelation, including all of Genesis and Revelation, is the very Word of God. And that's why we spend so much time carefully studying it, because it really is our handbook for life. Without it, we wouldn't know how to come to Christ for salvation. We wouldn't even know how to live lives that bring Him glory. So for our ongoing study, if you would, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4. We will be dealing with the first nine verses of that chapter. I have uh, been truly blessed in my life to have had some excellent male role models, especially in my impressionable and formative years as a young boy and then a young man. I have the fondest recollections of my Uncle Hugh, Hugh Sharp. He was my father's oldest brother, and like my dad, he was to me a man's man. Most of you know what I mean by that. He never seemed to talk too much about his heroic efforts in the bloody Battle of the Bulge, but he was a decorated soldier in the service of our country. He was a humble man, but at the same time, a man with some very deep convictions. For most of his life, unlike my dad, he made no profession of faith in Jesus Christ. I can tell you, though, that God did give me the greatest joy and privilege of being by his deathbed, when after years of our family's prayers and our gentle pleadings, Literally in his last hours, God was gracious to put the name of Jesus upon his lips. I know that I'll see him again someday along with my dad, who I still miss very much. My Uncle Hugh was employed by one of the major petroleum companies, and at one time they paid his way to attend what was called a Dale Carnegie course. And uh, he really became captivated by the teachings of that man, Dale Carnegie, who wrote the famed uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People. I was uh, just a very young man, barely out of my teens at that point, and my uncle kept urging me to take the same course. I never did. Maybe that's why I haven't won that many friends. I don't know. But I did have the privilege as a seminary student to preach his funeral. After which his wife, my Aunt Lynn, handed me something my uncle had carried in his pocket for many years. He had gotten it from the Dale Carnegie course. It was a small, uh, quite lovely, dark green marble, and a gold band around the circumference of that marble in tiny letters had the words of the golden rule inscribed upon it. 
Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Jesus' own words. I still have that marble. It's one of my life's little treasures. Well, now that I've shared all that, you've graciously indulged me yet again in a bit of nostalgia. I can finally get uh, to the point. One of the early assignments that my uncle uh, received during that Dale Carnegie course was that he should memorize Rudyard Kipling's famed verse entitled, If. One day, when I was visiting with him, he put his hand on my shoulder. He looked deeply into my eyes and with considerable passion and his very rich voice, he said these words all by memory. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, of being lied about and don't deal in lies, or being hated, but don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise. If you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make just thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to, broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. If you can make one heap of all your winnings and risk it on one turn of pitch and toss, and lose and start again at your beginnings... And never breathe a word of your loss. If you can force your heart and nerve and sinew to serve your turn long after they are gone. And so hold on when there is nothing in you except the will which says to them, hold on. If you can talk with crowds and keep your virtue or walk with kings but not lose the common touch. If neither foes nor loving friends can hurt you, if all men count with you but none too much, if you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, yours is the earth and everything that's in it. And then my Uncle Hugh paused and said, and which is more, you'll be a man, my son. I get goosebumps just recalling what it was like that day to hear those words from him. You know, my uncle to me was an excellent man. At this particular place in our study of Paul's epistle to the Philippians, I see the Apostle Paul calling the believers to a life of excellence, living for the glory of God. It is as though, in a figurative way, he puts his hand on the shoulder of every Christian man, woman, boy, and girl, looks deeply into our souls, 
and with considerable passion points us in the direction of the excellent man of a Christ-like maturity. Paul will address our relationships here, we will see, with others in the body of Christ. He'll address our relationships with Christ himself through our prayer life. And then he will reveal as well the secrets to developing an excellent mind as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now the reason for Paul's concern that believers pursue an excellent Christian life is stated here right in verse 1 of chapter 4. He's telling them he wants them to stand, to take a stand. It was not easy to take one's stand with Christ in the first century. It already had landed Paul in prison as he writes this letter. And the Philippian believers were just as much at risk. And in our day and place and time, anyone, I would suggest, who dares to truly live out their faith, they may not have to face uh, deprivation or death, but such a one does become, the scriptures tell us, a target of Satan. And those around us as well become enemies because our commitment, our stand with Christ somehow threatens their godless lifestyle. So I'm suggesting to you, we need this message just as much as the Philippian believers needed it in their day. And it begins this way, doesn't it? Verse 1, my beloved brethren whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Now, this stand firm comment is is really a military-like command. He's writing in another place, you remember, to the Ephesian believers. He's using the same image, in fact, the same word. And he says what it means to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ when he gave them these words. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Only a believer of excellence will be likely to stand in the evil days that are upon us right now. We'll look at the next few verses here, verses 2 through 9, and discover at least three rather specific areas where it is possible by God's grace to pursue excellence and as a result take a firm stand under our commander and chief, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now let me um, state each of the three points in advance and then we'll go back and look at each one individually for the remainder of our study this morning. But some of you like to jot these things down when I have very specific points. Feel free to do that. Three points. Number one, the excellent Christian stands firm by promoting, I'm sorry, by preserving peace in the body of Christ. I'll repeat it. The excellent Christian 
stands firm by preserving peace in the body of Christ. Verses 2 and 3, and we'll look at that in just a moment. Secondly, the excellent Christian stands firm by promoting joy through prayerful trust in God's grace. Verses 4 through 7. I know that's a mouthful, so I'm going to repeat each of these. The excellent Christian stands firm by promoting joy through prayerful trust in God's grace. Verses 4 through 7. And then thirdly, another mouthful. The excellent Christian stands firm by protecting the mind through godly thinking and godly actions. We'll see that in verses 8 and 9. I'll repeat it again. The excellent Christian stands firm by protecting the mind through godly thinking and godly actions. Well, let's ask the Lord's help to unfold these truths to us in these next moments. Father, grant to us the illuminating ministry of your Holy Spirit. Plant this word like seed into our hearts and minds and bring forth a righteous harvest out of our lives for your greater glory. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The first principle then stated again. The excellent Christian stands firm by preserving peace in the body of Christ. Uh, The only army that's going to make any advance against the enemy in these dark days is the army, army, you will admit, that is united under one leadership. Now, we're going to take the verses that I mentioned along with this, but I Before I read them, I want you to sort of use your sanctified imaginations. Just try to imagine this. Just stay with me for a moment. Suppose you were living in the first century when the New Testament was being written. And it just so happens that you had some unfortunate experience of conflict with another church member in the congregation. I know that just seems beyond belief. But suppose that that were your situation. And things started to get a little messy, uh, even a bit nasty. And the next thing you know, others in the church get involved in the conflict, the disagreement, whatever it is, so that now there is actually a disruption of the peace and the unity in the church. Now, can you imagine that happening? Well, that's bad enough, but then, keep imagining, the next thing you know, your name becomes a permanent part of Holy Scripture for all eternity. You know, on my growing list of people I want to meet when I get to heaven are these two ladies in our text. The name Euodia and Syntyche. 
I've wondered for a long time, and I'm going to ask them someday, just what were you two ladies arguing about? In heaven, at least, they won't be pointing any fingers. But still, how humbling is that? A conflict has arisen between just two people. But it threatens the peace and the unity of the body of Christ. And they end up with their names in the written word of God. Paul writes from Rome all the way to Philippi and says in verse 2, look at it, I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. What do you conclude from that? If nothing else, we rightly conclude that there was some considerable disharmony between these two sisters in Christ. Now, let me say further, we know that they are true believers because in verse 3, you'll see the apostle commends both of them for sharing Paul's struggles in the cause of the gospel. And he includes them with others whose names, he says, are written in the book of life. So these are two believing women in disharmony. But tragically, something has happened, right, between these two in their relationship to one another. And as we said, it's affecting the whole congregation. Paul has to write the whole church about these two. Like I say, I know that could never happen in our day. A number of years ago, I was being facetious, a number of years ago, studying this same verse, I unwittingly took the time to look up the meaning of their two names, Euodia and Syntyche in the Greek language. I don't even know what motivated me to do that, but I did it. And what I found, my friends, just has to be one of the most delicious ironies in all of the Bible. Listen to this. If you take the literal meaning of the name euodia, it's a two-part Greek word, it means, we could translate it this way, fine traveling. Odos is the word for road, a picture of someone traveling, and the prefix means that it's a good trip. So here's one of the ladies whose name is euodia. Her name means fine traveling. Then, and I'm not exaggerating at all, there's the name Syntyche. Guess what it means? It's translated an accident. I don't know if mom and dad uh, were trying to think of a name when they weren't expecting this child or what, but she got the name in Greek of accident. Now, what a providential irony when you think about it. Perhaps good old Euodia just going along, minding her own business, serving the Lord. And here comes Syntyche, an accident just waiting to happen. At any rate, there's a conflict. I want you to see this. Paul's concern is not who was right and who was wrong or whether both were wrong in whatever happened, did you notice how he uses the term urge? I read it to you. The term urge twice. He says, I urge Euodia, 
and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Now, one of them may have been innocent and the other guilty. We really don't know. But the point is that both of them have an equal responsibility to get in harmony with each other in the Lord. Now, the same principle applies today. I've had enough experience in this, but the Word of God also teaches it very clearly. No harmful church conflict is ever over until both parties, both parties, all those involved, have assumed responsibility for restoring the peace. In fact, even if the disharmony remained only with the two people, I want you to see how in verse 3, Paul calls upon the others in the church. What does he say? Help these women. The whole body of Christ has the responsibility for maintaining the peace of the church as a whole, even if it's just one individual who's out of sorts. Preserving the peace is every church member's calling. Say amen. Trust you a minute. It may be true that no church is stronger than its weakest member, but this is also true. All are to be helped. So the excellent Christian stands firm by preserving peace in the body of Christ. Now that means in practical matters, if in the course of a day or a week, you hear something that sounds like disharmony, you have a responsibility to help promote, not to take sides, not to try necessarily to even figure out who's right, who's wrong. All are urged to be in harmony because the cause is greater than any one or two people. The cause is the glory of Christ in and through his church, right? Now, number two, the excellent Christian stands firm, we said, by promoting joy through prayerful trust in God's grace. We get those from those next several verses. You know, I can't tell you how many times as a biblical counselor, I have been thankful for the words in verse four. It says, rejoice in the Lord. How often? Rejoice in the Lord always. Didn't hear me the first time? Again, I will say, rejoice. You know, I doubt that Paul is calling for some kind of uh, giddy, nonsensical, unrealistic, or supernatural attitude toward the hard things of life. It's just plain stupid if you're late for an appointment and you've got a flat tire and you get out of the car and look at it and say, Lord, I rejoice. Thank you for this flat tire. I don't think the Apostle Paul is asking us to be some kind of super spiritual nut. When he says rejoice always, it's specific. He tells us that it is the Lord himself, not flat tires, 
not a bad cold, not bad news from the doctor. It is the Lord himself we are to rejoice in. And that we can do always, not our bad stuff. You see, when you and I learn to rejoice in the unchangeableness of Christ, when you and I have disciplined ourselves to rejoice in his faithfulness, no matter what situation we find ourselves, when we rejoice in the way he promises to work for good, even in the worst of our circumstances, then if you're rejoicing in him, you're getting close to the true meaning of what it means to have the joy of the Lord abiding in your heart, no matter what tears may actually be falling from your eyes. This is a universal principle for every event in the believer's life, that no matter what changes may come, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And you leave your circumstance there, and you do as we sung earlier in our worship service. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim, and you will have more than enough to rejoice in as you look away to Christ. And by the way, he's concerned about that flat tire. He's concerned about every bad thing in your life, and he has pledged to use it to work together for good. Look at verse 5. In the realm of difficult relationships like that of uh, Euodia and Syntyche, it is possible apparently to be gentle with others if you will remember that the Lord, as it says in this text, is right there in it with you. Isn't that what he's saying? I'll read it. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The verse doesn't end there. He gives us the motive. He empowers us in the tightest of situations, in the hottest of conflicts, to still be gentle. But how? Only when we remind ourselves of the second part of the verse. The Lord is near. How near do you think God is when you're in the thick of the battle? The more literal translation here would be, the Lord is at hand. Sometimes we just need to step aside, I think, and let his hand do the work that needs to be done. Well, the next thing he says to us, and this is all about how we're going to stand firm, is to be anxious, he says, for nothing. How many of you know that verse by heart? How many times have you quoted it? Usually to others we quote it, right? Too few times we quote it to ourselves when we're in a fit of anxiety. But we know the verse. Be anxious for nothing. I remember saying that to someone and they, they got pretty upset with me and said, Pastor, I'm not anxious for nothing. I'm anxious for something. Paul says, you don't have to panic about anything. I know what they mean when they say I'm anxious for something. That is that there's real issues going on here. He says if you want to be anxious for nothing over anything, then take the somethings to the Lord in prayer. We cannot ignore this prescription 
because I don't recall time in now almost 30 years of pastoral ministry, I don't recall a time like these present days when I encounter more anxious professing Christians. We need this prescription. This is the best medicine out there for anxiety. God's prescription is prayer. Some cases need to take it three times a day, with or without a meal. Prayer. And isn't it true if we'll just be honest, all too often in our anxious moments or in those severe panic attacks, call it what you will, usually the last thing we do is to pray. Let these two verses, let me, let me read them slowly. Let them speak for themselves. They're so powerful, but they must be taken by faith to have their intended effect. Look, if you won't take your medicine, I don't know how much pity I can have if you continue in a constant state of anxiety. This is God's prescription. Let's read it. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, in everything, by prayer, And supplication, fervent prayer, yet with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Talk to God about it. And what does he say? The God who does not lie says, if I will do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, a peace I can't even explain, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It'll be during our our devotional time uh, this Wednesday at our praise and prayer hour, 7 o'clock. We're going to come back to this verse at that time. I intend to have us take a closer look uh, at the two verses. But for now, simply applied, but so often neglected. How true. How true are Joseph Scriven's words? We have sung together. We have sung this for thousands of times. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry. How much? Everything to God. How? In prayer. And then he writes... Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry, you finish it, everything to God in prayer. Are we weak, heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge? Take it. To the Lord in prayer. Do your friends despise, forsake you? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms, he'll take and shield you. You will find a solace there. Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it 
to the Lord in prayer. I can only draw one conclusion, friends. A despairing, anxious, overwhelmed Christian is a Christian who is not praying. A despairing, anxious, overwhelmed Christian is a Christian who is not praying. And then finally, the excellent Christian stands firm by promoting joy through prayerful trust in God's grace. Take note that it is not prayer in and of itself, but as a result of our coming to him, that the God of peace in Christ Jesus, which is to say that Jesus himself takes up his post to guard our hearts and keep our minds. Frankly, it means to keep us from going crazy. Yes, what needless pain we bear. Now Paul has just said, That guarding and keeping our minds is the gracious work of our Savior through his word, through the instrument of prayer. But now he will remind us in the last of our two verses, eight and nine, that we have some responsibility for what we allow to occupy our minds and our thoughts. Please listen to this. Please. We have some responsibility for what we allow to occupy our mind and our thoughts. So I say thirdly, the excellent Christian stands firm by protecting the mind through godly thinking and godly actions. Verse 8, verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence, we've been talking about the excellent Christian. If there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Today we'd use the word mindset. Let your mind be set on these things. Whatever's true, honorable, right, pure, and so forth, lovely, good report, excellence. Dwell on it. Now let's apply it and let's go home. Can you imagine posting this text, Philippians 4.8, over your TV set? If you did, we both know that the screen would have to be black most of the time. We are to ask the question if we profess to be God's children. Is this program, is this movie, is that sitcom... Is this book, is that CD, is that DVD, you name it, does this amusement of mine pass the Philippians 4.8 test? It's a tough test. Is this thing true? Is it honorable? Is it right? Is it pure? Is it lovely? Does it promote good reputation? Is it an excellent thing? Should it be praised? Now, I know, not just because I have two teenagers at home. I know because of the ways of my own flesh. It is a major challenge today to find anything much in this world that can pass this test and still be called 
entertainment. In fact, I believe that our tastes have become so jaded, we'd rather spend hours consuming the world's fluff, its cotton candy and popcorn, than feasting on the meat of God's word and those things in the world that have in them the remnants of God's own beauty and excellence. God help us. As Neil Postman's book, and he's not even a Christian, suggested a few years ago, we are a culture that is amusing ourselves to death. While the opportunities and the preciousness of our lives quickly pass by. I mean, consider the antonyms in this verse, the opposites. Truth would become lies. Honorable would become something disgraceful. Right would be wrong. Pure would be defiled. Lovely would be only a perversion and so on. And yet to such foul things, many a professing Christian finds themselves, I would say, literally addicted. Oh, that God would send a revival and detoxify our souls. But clearly, we have a responsibility to think, to set our minds on godly things. The excellent Christian stands firm by protecting the mind through godly thinking. The second part of that point, if you remember, though, I add the words and godly actions as well. It comes from verse 9. The things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Paul says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. We're to learn to think and to act biblically. Now, beloved, this call to be an excellent Christian is such a high calling, isn't it? It demands, frankly, more of us than we could ever in our own strength or by our own resolves and good intentions ever rise to. The good news is that we have God's grace and we have the power of his Holy Spirit to at least get us started to help us. I think of the psalmist, and I was thinking about myself when this verse came to mind with which I'll bring the message to a close. From whence comes my help? I need help with this stuff. The culture is so strong. The media is everywhere. My help comes from the Lord. And I just want to say, if we do nothing else this morning, then sincerely begin to cry out to the Lord to help us on to excellence, to pursue holiness in the fear of the Lord. I know that he will hear the faintest of cries from each of our hearts this morning. And as Paul stated at the very beginning of this precious epistle, he was confident that God, who began a good work in them, will continue to perfect it until Jesus comes. We can get on with this high calling to excellence. Of first importance right now, though, is my question. Have you ever turned to Christ and asked him to forgive you for your sin? And I ask, will you act in faith to trust him as your Lord and Savior? Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be rescued, will be saved.
having done that of next importance is the question, will you, believer, trust him to help you each day by his grace to more and more turn away from the things that defile and behold the beautiful even in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ.